Well, if faults are engaging, I am exceptionally engaging. Good morning, everyone. It is time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast that helps you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and organization for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm Jessica Kerr, and today I'm proud to present Aaron Blahoyak, purveyor of fine DevOps and systems thinking everywhere, including at Netflix. But first, a word from our sponsors. The worst thing about the Arrested DevOps podcast is when it ends. You're left wondering what to do next. What are you going to listen to on your commute home? How do you occupy your time when walking the dog? What are you going to listen to during the quarterly all-hands meeting? But fear not, dear listener. There is a solution. You need to subscribe to Software Defined Talk right now. It's a weekly podcast that recaps all the news in cloud computing, DevOps, and enterprise software. The hosts, Kote, Matt Ray, and Brandon Wichard, will keep you up to date on all things cloud while offering tips on how to optimize your Costco haul and how to PowerPoint. It's a fun, free-flowing conversation that will keep you entertained and informed. What are you waiting for? Subscribe to the podcast today by visiting softwaredefinedtalk.com or by searching for Software Defined Talk in your favorite podcast app. Aaron, welcome to the show. Tell everyone what you're working on these days. I'm working on a lot, and I'm also wrapping things up because I'm about to go on parental leave. Um, oh, congratulations. Thank you so much. It's funny that you say congratulations to someone when really what you should say is like, oh, I hope you're ready. <laughs> No, ready. That's ridiculous. It's true. It's true. This is our second <laughs> child, so I a didn't learn my lesson, and b I didn't know what I mean. <laughs> so you know yeah. this is not a vacation. It's more dread than excitement. No, I'm really happy, but uh, thank you. Uh, so work stuff, yeah. Um, yeah, well, it, it, it's 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 kind of like um, you're never really ready for production. You just go and hope you can handle it. <laughs> There are a lot of uh, analogies to be made between uh, having a new person come online and having a new system come up. Oh, yeah. Uh, both ability to like need to adapt continuously, as well as the uh, mutual learning between or mutual development between yourself and the thing that you're operating in some ways. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. You have to listen and like only gradually do you get your system to to use words to tell you what its problem is. <laughs> and it requires a, a careful nurturing over a long period of time. It's not an instantaneous, okay, we have now operated the system. It is now operational. I can go do something else, right? Mm. It requires this ongoing investment in relationship, um, which relates to the stuff I'm doing at work. I guess that's a segue. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, three big things uh, that I focus on. So first, I'm in the cloud infrastructure engineering part of our platform engineering organization, which is part of the general cloud or like service or backend part of how Netflix works. And we tend to really focus on the uh, availability, the efficiency, and the security of our uh, infrastructure overall, as well as like helping to raise that level of abstraction. And so to that to those ends, I'm working on three different projects. One is um, cost efficiency, or sometimes we we'll use the term cost compression. Uh, cost so, compression? Yep. Yeah, we have a certain like cost of not goods sold, because that includes things like buying content, but 
our cloud costs, if you can imagine, you know, mm-hmm. people, uh, Netflix is kind of like Blockbuster, but online where you can like watch videos. Uh, <laughs> and our, our major KPI there is our cost per stream, right? So we take our total cloud cost, how many streams we serve or how many times people click to play successfully. And we divide the two numbers, one over the other, and that gives us our cost per stream. Each year, we want that number to go down by a certain amount. That shows that like our costs are growing sublinear to the growth of the usage of our business. So that's what we call a cost mm-hmm. compression. So how do we do that without having budgets? And so there's no prior approval for getting resources, right? It's the cloud. You just call an API and you get more resources. Oh, okay. So you have to achieve cost compression without telling engineers not to spend money. Uh, exactly. Yes. Um, not only do we tell them, like, go ahead and spend money, but, like, uh, lean into innovation, right? When you're in doubt, just go ahead, spend a little bit more. And so how do you have that kind of attitude and still achieve a sublinearity of cost growth over time? I'm very excited about reducing costs without avoiding costs. Yeah, yeah. So funny thing there. It turns out that like people are incredibly bad at uh, making predictions about the future, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that's generally true. And given some of our, our shared reading lists, I think that we've <laughs> You also probably believe that to be true. So if you don't believe that you can predict very well, then what you should do instead is get really good at reacting. And it turns out that reacting has all of the power of hindsight um, because you have all this additional information so you can make even better decisions. And Hmm. so it's far easier over the long run to uh, let things go as they may and then be very good at detecting hotspots, problem areas, or causes for concern, and then investing there. Whereas if you don't know what the hotspots are going to be, and you're nervous about it, if you will, you try to put a bunch of controls or a whole bunch of investment into modeling, which is very expensive and also inaccurate. So, mm-hmm. you know, at scale, we have the advantage of having so many teams, so many, you know, thousands and thousands of services out there, that the odds that any one service is going to blow out our cost per stream number is uh, very small. But if we don't monitor it, things may get out of hand. So we have this uh, like feedback loop kind of cycle where we have continuous monitoring and understanding of the cost growth uh, per service, team, manager, director, VP level org. And then we diff those over time and we see what is growing linearly, sublinearly, or superlinearly, superlinearly <laughs> to streaming. And then we mm-hmm. can uh, engage as necessary. And sometimes that engagement is like, hey, did you know? that you did this (laughs) or did you forget to turn this off? Um, And frequently that's like, oops, uh, that's (laughs) ROI interaction that we have. And the second thing is, yeah, we know, and we'll get around to it if it makes sense. Right. Cause most of what we do is AB testing. And so if the test cell isn't going to be productionalized or go forward in perpetuity, then it doesn't make any sense at all to optimize that, functionality that feature that branch if you will so don't fix it until you know you're going to keep it exactly exactly uh, because the the pace of innovation that pace of turnover having those very, very tight um feedback loops is really i think the most important thing for the business rather than shaving a few percent off the bill um at any given time so over the long run this has been extraordinarily successful and then we really try to create um not cost control, but cost consciousness. So when we're talking about like moving things more into developers' uh, minds as we're trying to like get operations as part of the full life cycle of creating the software from its product conception through to when it's retired, um, we 
creates uh, easy visibility into exactly what the cost implications of what you're using in the cloud is. And that's not just your instances, but if you're calling a Cassandra database or you're, call or you're using a bunch of uh, networking stuff, you know, your actual cost impact to the whole system is distributed throughout potentially dozens of teams. And so how do we roll that up and show you only the things that matter and are important and relevant to what's changed lately? And so that's where we have a fair bit of uh, investment in. Um, and our the big thing that we're working on now that I'm super excited about is not only looking at cost growth, but also utilization. So, okay, we know how much you've been paying for, but how much of that are you actually using? And so it turns out that like we haven't really dug into that a lot. <laughs> oh, okay. So you've got the point where the cost is, is lo low enough yeah. that you don't care about utilization. But now you're like, oh, well, what if we care about utilization? Exactly. And just like, show me all of the uh, clusters with an average CPU utilization less than 20%. And maybe they could not be so big. Maybe. Right? Exactly. And so like, it turns out you run a couple of those queries, you save a few millions of dollars, and some people are happy and nobody really worries about it. <laughs> uh, so when people think about utilization, oh, you know, the difference between 40 and 60 is way different than the difference between 60 and 80. It's like, cool. Do you know anybody that really runs their entire cloud infrastructure at 60% utilization all the time? I don't. Yeah, no. Uh, and of course, CPU isn't the only dimension. So it's multi-dimension. You have to find out which was the actual bottleneck and frequently find out, oh, they just had a mistuned thread pool. Uh, but anyway, that's down in the weeds. The, detail. <laughs> um, the good weeds. I love those weeds. Yeah. So okay, cool. So it sounds like you let developers, it's like, don't worry, but do care. Yes, exactly. Don't worry, but do care. That brilliant. I'm going to get to <laughs> That is like a great philosophy for life itself. Exactly. Love Sweet. It. <laughs> yeah. It also reminds me of um, what all John Alspa and John Cuttlefish Cutler, his Twitter is Cuttlefish um, talk about with the difference between autonomy and agency. Mm. I, mean, it, I mean, yeah, you let them spend whatever they want, but you give them the feedback loop so that they're conscious of what they're spending an agency has feedback. You can take you can take action in the world and see the consequences. Exactly, exactly. And combining that with uh, leading into the organizational structure itself, lets uh, the suits manage their investment as a portfolio. Mm. So, in other organizations where they get too uh, kind of nitpicky about this stuff, individual services will get called out for being too expensive. Whereas if you go to a director and you say, hey, your whole organization costs have gone up this much, and here are the you know, leading um, reasons for that growth, which may be a couple services, they may think, oh, that team is kind of super underwater, has this big deadline facing. Instead of focusing on that growth, I can actually lean on this other team that has a bit of slack in their time to actually put more optimization to their infrastructure, even though it may not immediately jump out to us as being a driver of cost growth. So they can still achieve that overall portfolio cost of linearity that they desire without having to like put a blocker in front of a specific team that's doing a lot of high innovation work. Mm. So the directors are able to balance the cost growth against the, the benefit growth that that right. team is providing with its innovation. Yeah. And rarely do we go up the management chain. The most frequent thing is you just ping an engineer on Slack and you're like, did you know that this is happening? <laughs> Usually it's like, no, I did not know. Should I be paying attention to these dashboards? It's like, not unless we say, hey. <laughs> oh, cool. Oh, oh, wait, 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 wait. You just said that you make dashboards 
Yes. And you tell people when they should look at them. Generally, yes. Yes. So you don't like expect them to look at them the way you do every day. Yeah. And we only look at it. We have automated alerting, so we don't even look at it unless an alert comes in, really. Um, yeah. So the dashboards are more like cost debugging utilities than they are like put this on a monitor in above somebody's cubicle or something like that. Right. Nice. Nice. So the dashboards are useful when you have questions as opposed to be being something that people are supposed to magically put into their consciousness. Yeah. It is part of, uh, they're like, there's a small rotation of people who are part of our capacity operations team that have daily tasks to like, uh, the equivalent would be an operator of a power plant who has to look at the board and see where all the oh. dials are and make sure everything kind of makes sense. There is like a five minute daily chore for someone who's part of the capacity operations on call to just do a quick uh, smell test, if you will, to see how things are going in the system. But generally, no, for the thousands of engineers that we have in the organization, we don't expect any of them to look at their cost information unless we're specifically initiating a, hey, can you consider this or explain this to me? Um, that's some really like, like um, high efficiency uh, mental effort allocation there. Yeah, we really try to make those sort of like uh, long-term view kinds of things where we really value this context over control. It's generally like mm. a, not only a strategy, but like a philosophy for the company. Nice, nice. So, so you're providing the engineers with the context that they need. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and that is quite different from the other big projects or the second big project that I'm working on, which is a unified uh, strategy for access isolation uh, at Netflix. Access isolation. Now, is that under security or availability? It is primarily under security. So for um, it does have availability implications because if somebody can, you know, the power to touch is the power to kill, as it were. Sure, sure. But, well, uh, availability is part of security. Yes, there, and we struggle with this internally with uh, where some of these security functions live between our dedicated infrastructure, information security organization or infrastructure organizations. Really? And, yeah, the stable state that we've achieved is basically a cross matrixing of uh, some people who attend each other's staff meetings, who they're part of their offsites and planning and things. Um, so things like how mutual TLS works on the network uh, you really have to understand the nitty-gritty details of certificates and certificate management, which is a security expertise, but it also crosses into our networking stack and our networking expertise. And this is uh, one of the big parts of how the access isolation thing is going forward, uh, is helping to like, bridge these worlds together. So this project uh, includes representatives from about a dozen different teams uh, all working together mm -hmm. to try to align. Yeah, so... Trust like is hard. <laughs> Yeah, trust trust is hard, as well as um, getting user experiences really, really great uh, in, internally. So like it, traditionally, we've succumbed to Conway's law, and we've really like shipped our org chart to our end users. So if you wanted to like spin up a new service as a developer, and we all have uh, you write it, you operate it, you love it kind of model for almost all of our teams. So mm -hmm. the person writing the code is also responsible for configuring security groups and setting up, you know, which VPC they're running in, which AWS account. And 
uh, oh, by the way, I need to access this other app. How do I enable that access? Uh, now you might have to talk to a couple different teams because you also might need a different IAM profile to access this S3 bucket, which this transitive library that you included depends on. And anyway, ah. it's a giant mess right now. And so we're trying to put it all behind a single declarative config of these are the resources I need to access that are outside of my organization. And then hopefully and we'll do you allow those resources to declare their dependencies on other resources that you will then also need access to. Exactly. Exactly. Um, we're trying to make that a really great experience. So it can be as self-serve as possible. Mm -hmm. Really give that power to developers. And so here we're kind of, it's an inversion of that relationship where developers should just give us the context that they have about what they need. And then we should just make it happen. Whereas on the cost side, we give them the context of what is happening and what we need and they figure out how to make it happen. So there's two different flows of uh, how the context works in order to affect change in the system. That's so the developers of... need to tell you what resources they need, and then you give them the access that they need and nothing yeah. else? Yep, it all gets configured, yeah. And so it's not quite least privileged. It's like uh, almost least privileged, because we do want to give you a little bit overly broad access from exactly what you need, so we don't have too many stumbling blocks. So like mm -hmm. if you have a couple different systems in your same team and you spin up a third or a new system, you shouldn't have to do a bunch of grunt work to say and access everything else that my team owns, right? So you want to have some sort of like organization. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah, you, you you want like the the cells to have access to adjacent cells in the same muscle tissue. Exactly. That's precisely uh, but if they need a nerve ending, they got to say so. <laughs> yeah, and some nerves may have uh, the desire some to say, oh, no, only sensitive. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> Small nerve. You can't touch this one. Unless you really know what you're doing. Um, and then it gets even more complicated because there are things that are like external to the organ, you know, to the company, and some things that are in this murky area of like, is it external or is it internal? And then even within internal, some people have this whole fantasy that you can uh, cleanly divide your business into domains. And then within a domain, it's free for all, but cross domain, that's where you really have to focus. Well, we did a, like a pretty lengthy graph analysis of our uh, networking flows and communications. And we do have communities that we can identify um, just by looking at network flows. But the interconnectedness between the communities uh, is so vast that there are almost as many exceptions as there are um, local connections within the communities. So we can't have any of these like strict segmentations. Um, that was wow. a pretty... Almost a, like people. <laughs> yeah, indeed. It is very much a, yeah, a graph, not a tree. Services. Mm. Right. So you do observe some clustering um, of, of interactions. Yes. So uh, it, if you're familiar with the Netflix service, the things responsible for picking out like what shows and movies to display to you all kind of talk to each other along with your thumbs up, thumbs downs, those kinds of mm -hmm. things. Um, but they also uh, have some interaction with the systems responsible for DRM for various reasons. Um, hmm. And so DRM is the copyright protection thinger. Yeah, digital rights management. So, like, basically authorizing that you do, in fact, have the ability to stream this, and then how exactly that works mechanically with key exchange and stuff like that per title per person. Wow. Per um, wow. 
Yeah, there's a whole bunch of shenanigans that goes on behind the scenes to make it work. (laughs) Things I'm glad I personally don't have to think about. I just watched the movie. (laughs) Yeah. So so some people wonder, like, uh, you go on Hacker News sometimes and someone mentions Netflix engineering. Like, why do they have thousands of engineers? I could put that together with (laughs) a couple of services. (laughs) 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 <laughs> yes, yes. Good luck because I mean some people set up their little their little streaming boxes in their house, right? Oh, yeah, right. yeah, so they can stream from their own personal media server. <laughs> if you're really lucky, you'll get that set up in a weekend, but 2 weeks later it's going to break and have fun with that. <laughs> uh, it reminds me like when uh Dropbox came out. People were like, "Well, you have rsync, what's Dropbox for?" Uh, <laughs> Yeah, there's there's like such a difference between something being technically possible. Um, like, I, I mean, I own Monty Python and the Holy Grail somewhere. I, I have the DVD and the DVD player under my TV might still work and I might be able to find the remote um, and, and the disc might not be scratched. But but that is not near at hand. That is not, I just got myself a beer. I'm thinking about going to sleep, but maybe I'll put this movie on. I mean, fuck it. I'm not, I'm, I'm, am I allowed to curse on this show? Yes. Yes, I am. We are allowed to curse on the show. Um, yes. fuck, yeah. <laughs> fuck it. I'm not going to get up and look for the disc and turn on the, no, but I will pick up the Roku remote and click Netflix. And it, and it's the same with Dropbox. Oh, let's file share. Oh, do we have to? Um, or, oh, okay. Yeah, click, click. There it is. So It funny changes should, behavior. Uh, it totally does. Funny that you should mention DVD players. Um, yeah. If you want to uh, get under a Netflix engineer's nerves, just mention like things like DVD players and old hardware. So as a Netflix customer, I love the fact that Netflix still works on hardware that I bought 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. As in, uh, oh. which the of Netflix service supporting hardware that is 10 years old that you can't update in the field. Uh, et cetera, oh, et cetera. no. And like it, 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 it can only support such levels of encryption and. And encoding. And by the way, wait, was that uh, SSL certificate baked into the hardware? <laughs> <sighs> That's the damn certificate again. Yeah, they're yeah. so hard and so important. <laughs> so yeah, it's that whole access isolation thing, and it's uh, not yeah. only system to system, but users to systems, and then also how systems talk to AWS. So it covers all three different branches of who needs to talk to what. But it, at the end, at the end of the day, it's uh, roles, and you apply rule policies to those roles. So it's very easy to describe. But then again, like we're just talking about the implementation here, with a dozen different teams all being involved. And trying to make that one seamless experience wow. for the end user, which internally is the developer. Um, right, right. To- because the, the, the 12 or 20 of you are trying to take that complication um, and, and the, the complexity of figuring out what those roles need to be and minimize them onto yourselves so that the developer can can just do things right. Exactly, exactly. And then we can audit it and then create that similar feedback loop with, hey, this is overly broad. You enabled this access but haven't used it in the last however much time. Do you really need it? Um, internally, I keep referring to that as have a Clippy pop-up, which is pretty <laughs> uh, We have a pretty famous open source uh, software thing called RepoKid, uh, which does this for IAM permissions uh, that um, 
monitors all of the permissions that are granted to different instance profiles and uh, finds the ones that aren't used and then suggests re reclaiming those. Uh, so whenever I mention Clippy, our fine friends in InfoSec are like, you mean Repo Kid? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh -huh, uh -huh, oh. sure. you could, the young yeah, ones who don't remember Clippy. <laughs> and the last big project, the third leg of my personal stool is uh, Netflix's regional growth and high availability story. Okay. So we operate uh, streaming out of three regions today, and we can operate in any two of the three. And that's so if, AWS regions? Yep. Um, so if any region goes, we also do, uh, we endeavor to have all of our changes be regionally, uh, um, to roll out one region at a time with time in between each step. So I don't mean to say that we primarily build our HA functionality because if Amazon breaks a region, although in the rare case that they do, it helps. You know, our developers are pushing hundreds of changes a day or thousands if you include configuration changes. Uh, so frequently our very short-lived small outages are self-induced. And so we can use regional evacuation to route around that bad change while we're still trying to do the fault localization remediation or reversibility exercise to restore service in that region. So your regions are not just different regions. They're also different deployed code. Yeah, usually. Um, it's so, so just like we have uh, A-B tests that make it difficult or impossible to know like what is the current state of the Netflix software, we also have these regional staggering of deploys. So we never can say like, this is the current version of Netflix deployed to the cloud. Uh, it's always like, what is this version if you're in this A-B cell and your traffic is getting routed to this region? Uh, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, and yeah. There, there is no, there is no single version of software anymore. Not in production. Exactly. If nothing yeah. else, somebody's got a client on their browser that hasn't <laughs> been able to update in a while. Okay, so, so what is what is your project there? Um, there, so Netflix as a business is not only uh, streaming videos. But we also produce a lot of content, and content production is worldwide. So if you, uh, wherever you are in the world and you view Netflix, your uh, recommendations for content are be based on both your prior viewing history as well as your local geography. So you may not be aware of this. And what they want me to watch. Well, <laughs> I, it's outside of my area of expertise to comment more. <laughs> so I will uh, not do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I certainly have not had enough beer to uh, go into that. Still early. Um, <laughs> right. It's uh, 2.31 as we're recording this in the afternoon, not the morning. Um, <laughs> yeah. We yeah. do uh, Netflix originals all around the world, though. So mm -hmm. if you're in uh, South America, Europe, Africa, uh, East Asia, South Asia, you'll be seeing different uh, originals that we did produce locally. And of course, if you search through it uh, in the search bar on Netflix, you can find all that content, but it may not be oh. um, presented to you, depending on where you are. So the, the short version is we're producing content all around the world. Uh, we're a pretty large production uh, studio today. and. Uh, have ambitions to be even larger in the future and how do we support all of that local production and also also all of the like um, post work such as like visual effects editing color grading audio editing um, all this other work and a lot of that work uh, is pretty latency sensitive in some of those applications so serving all of those uh, workers computation needs out of our streaming region isn't a great fit so we're going to have this region oh. 
to yeah um, to support all of these like artists uh, throughout the world. And then additionally, there may be at some point in the future uh, data sovereignty issues, which drive us to change where our software runs. And that's, again, outside of my area of expertise from a legal perspective, but from a technological perspective, there may be a requirement to uh, either have a copy of our data in a specific region for a specific subset of users, or perhaps have an exclusive copy of our data in a particular place for a specific subset of users. And these are like those sort of like long-term potential like legal um, constraints that can drive your engineering decisions. And so someone has to be thinking about, okay, if that were to come down the pipe, uh, what would what could we do or what should we be doing now from an infrastructure perspective to make that easy? So some people might think, oh, you just add a line to your Terraform config and hit run, which would be cool if Netflix entered the cloud in the last like four years, but we were entered the cloud, you know, 10 years ago or more. So <laughs> some people might have the idea that, you know, we're all very modern in all of the things that we do. But in some ways, I like to think of us as having like, we're like the biggest legacy cloud user that's around. Uh, so if I search for US West 2 in our code base, there's over 10,000. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, so man. It's not as you know, add a line to your Terraform script and hit go. Uh, I wish it <laughs> We have a lot of yeah, cool stuff. Totally also have a, a, this accrued a lot of the uh, um, best efforts of people over those uh like I said, about 10 years or something. Uh, so there you're talking about availability to a completely different audience. And I'm guessing you don't price um, the, or do cost analysis on the software that you provide to people producing videos in terms of cost per stream. No, no. Um, and frankly, the cost of those services versus the total cost of production isn't enough to hit my radar. Ah. Um, just in terms of scale. Right, um, right. Yeah, that, that makes sense. A yeah. few pro, pro, a few productions get streamed a lot of times. Exactly. Which is why it makes sense for us to run our own CDN, because we have a very specific problem to solve that's very different from people who run general CDNs, where they aren't sure what the hit rate's going to be, what content to fill, et cetera, et cetera. And there's uh, plenty of blog posts out there if people want to look up OpenConnect. That is a separate organization, an incredible team of people who have really solved that uh, high read problem. Um, okay, for the streaming. Yeah, and it's my understanding, again, as outside of my area of expertise, that uh, those folks who do ship hardware boxes to ISPs and IXs and stuff like that saturate NICs like it's nothing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty cool then to think about, okay, well, then what are the constraints that you're working under? What are you optimizing today? And um, as part of my like capacity management responsibilities or uh, participation, I uh, liaise with uh, the director of capacity planning for the OpenConnect, the CDN side of the world. And she is amazing, but the way that she views the world is entirely different from me. So you know how we're like, okay, spend the money and we'll come chat at you and we'll deal with it later? Because they're dealing with shipping hardware to sites, to uh, you know, ISPs that have operators that we don't train or control, their lead times are hugely variable and way out in advance. And so uh, uh, Jessica Link, who's the director of capacity planning for that world, she is always thinking about like exact capacity needs several quarters in advance. And it's just the entirely opposite perspective of capacity planning. Uh, so when we chat, it's like, wait, that's how you do things? <laughs> she has to worry. Yes. Yes, yes, both worry and care. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. And sometimes when you have to worry, it's hard to see people uh, who don't worry as caring. Thankfully I don't have that problem or she hasn't let on that she doesn't. Think ah! <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess maybe she's used to talking to people <laughs> at Netflix. Yeah. Sometimes she does look at me like I am uh, from a different world. And maybe maybe that's something I should start to empathize with. Because um, I, I am, right? It's so amazing to me how the problem constraints really shape that culture that uh, you're talking about, right? Mm. So our CDN has been solving um, a relatively stable problem for a very long time. And how does that influence their ability to value rate of change uh, versus say like cost efficiency uh, mm-hmm. versus on like the streaming side of things where uh, we, most of the code we write is thrown away because of how many AB tests we're running. Nice. Um, and so for us, the rate of change thing is like by far and away the biggest driver of uh, functionality and design constraint. And then the, the third or I guess fourth world that I haven't really talked about before is our uh, big data stuff. We do a lot of data analysis, both for decision support and the content purchasing mm-hmm. side, as well as operational support, as well as like business analysis for marketing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a huge portion of our cloud footprint is our data analysis stuff. And those folks are operating under very different types of design c- criteria where the essentials of data analysis have, at least from my like rudimentary outside perspective, not changed from a huge degree, but mm-hmm. they run very many different jobs all the time. And so it's this interesting layering effect where they have, in some ways, an even higher change rate than the streaming path does, but in some ways, a much lower change rate because, like, the Hadoop cluster itself is relatively stable, for instance. Uh, but the jobs running on that cluster are very uh, much in flux. With a high oh, yeah, you might, you might write a job and run it once. Exactly. A lot of exploratory stuff. And then how do you do cross-system prioritization? How do you do uh, – we don't do chargebacks because we don't have budgets, but cost consciousness for a data engineer – like, what does it even mean for them to have that? Like, if I run a Spark job, I have no idea what this query is going to do, how much it's going to cost. And do we even want to have someone care about that before they hit, you know, run? Or how do you create a good feedback cycle there that also creates a good data lifecycle management and query lifecycle management practice? And mm-hmm. that's a whole other area of fascinating things. And, you know, you know I, I've talked a lot about costs here, but to me, costs isn't just dollars. It's also infrastructure burden. So, like, how much can your network, how many uh, mutations to your network can you take? A lot of that has to um, come from the different types of pressure you're putting on the infrastructure, which is usually ancillary related to how much you're spending. So when we create this, like, cost consciousness, it's really, like, impact consciousness. And we have had some scaling issues um internally where we've thought about do we want to create an impact score that's divorced from dollars but it turns out that they're so highly correlated that it doesn't make sense to break it out as a separate metric oh nice yeah dollars are useful for that they they just make a great measure of both value and cost well i don't know not always great but the best we got (laughs) certainly one input uh, although internally we are very data informed, but not data driven. And the difference is we use narrative nice. as a very <gasps> frequent override of um, quantitative uh, measure. That's beautiful. Um, it, a lot of engineers really struggle with it, frankly, even some of the ones that we hire to make that transition from 
quantitative analysis to qualitative, strategic, and ultimately systemic analysis, which is like really hard stuff, uh, even for people that are at pretty high levels sometimes. Um, thinking about like second order effects of uh, even like technology choices. So, like the fact that we choose to parse all of our accounts' bills in one sweep and separate like the AWS account itself from the teams that own the systems that run in those accounts lets us have a unified pool of resource perspective to our AWS cost. Like that technology change impacts our like accounting practices, which impacts um, our ability to then like affect culture change around cost consciousness and our, our feedback cycle. So I'll give you an example. There are other big orgs in the cloud where every team has its own AWS account. And so each bill comes in on a per team basis. So that cost consciousness is then localized to the team level. And so they doing rollups and being able to do that sort of like portfolio management of cloud cost growth doesn't really happen because the technology decisions don't support that kind of uh, aggregation and then disaggregation of cost. So you get local optimization at the team level, but not overall optimization of, okay, don't worry about this one today, push on this one instead. Exactly. And that's where you want to get to if you really want to pursue global optima, which is frankly what large organizations should be doing. Um, another thing that's hugely different for me personally is I spent about 10 years in startups before uh, joining Netflix. Um, and uh, once again, those like business and problem domain trade-offs really impact your approaches. So in a lot of startups I was working at, like an additional $100,000 here or there in an AWS bill would make or break the runway calculations that the CEO is presenting when trying to raise money. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah, you have to, you really have to worry about the, just the external appearance and how it affects fundraising at that point. Yeah, so it creates a totally different culture around cost and controls and things like that. Um, above and beyond the simple like sh shift to the cloud of going from uh, CapEx to OpEx, which I think is the more common narrative. Uh, mm. Right, right. Yeah, those those two categories have a big culture effect on enterprises. A systemic analysis. Yeah. You mentioned that the engineers sometimes struggle going to the narrative being the primary driver and the data informing, but not overwhelming that. I've, I've noticed that too. We like to we like the mechanical things. We want that like linear causality. If the number says this, then this. But that number says a lot of things. <laughs> and that number frequently says as much about the mindset of the person who's creating that numerical analysis as it does about the world itself. Exactly. So be deliberate with your mindset because that's the narrative. Yes. Yes. And one of the hard things about metrics, especially things that people consider like their key metrics, is um, they get a life of their own with how much people use them to guide their decisions and mm. then how much people use them to like build systems around them. And then if you find out that, well, maybe that's not the right measure, that can have a huge activation activation cost to potentially change or revise. So, like, if you think that refactoring code is hard, try like refactoring your KPIs for an org. Yeah, that's the whole socio technical system. Absolutely, I think that's my, my primary interest is this conversation that happens between 
the people involved and the technology that we use. That's what actually like engages people. It's the humanity of it. <laughs> well, if faults are engaging, I am exceptionally engaging. <laughs> that just might be the intro line for the podcast right there. <laughs> One thing I do love about our culture is um, how casual I can be with discussing my faults. Um, in a lot of places, you kind of have to act like even your faults are your strengths. And oh, there's yeah. a lot of like shame culture or even just like how dare you show weakness, right? With a lot of like sort of um, – there's an expectation that since Netflix is a very high-performing culture that we have very low tolerance for deviation in performance. Oh, as if a high-performing culture comes from only high-performing individuals? And as if only high-performing individuals only exhibit high-performance. Yes, yes. Whereas the company overall is it comes from the relations between those individuals and their technology. Um, and as individuals, it's like all of our behavior and the delta in it. Absolutely. Um and, and so I think that you, you alluded to a great point, which is that high-performing teams are often made of uh, individuals who are not in the upper decile of overall individual performance. Uh, like the high-performing right. teams have great cohesion, uh, et cetera, uh, psychological safety, um, communication flows, all of these great things. I think that even like within high-performing teams, the people that you can identify as maybe um, being force multipliers for others, those folks as well also have variation to their performance. And it's fine to just say, you know what? On this one, I screwed the pooch. Um, and yeah. uh, I, I think that creates a much healthier appetite for risk, uh, both emotional risk as well as like investment risk internally, if you're willing to say, well, got that one wrong. And there's two different ways of that, right? There's one, I made a, a good decision based on a faulty assumption of how the world mm -hmm. would work. And two, I made a bad decision based on a bad model of how the world is going to work. In the future, and, in these circumstances, I will make a different decision. Or I'm not the one to make that decision. Oh. Uh, it, it's even like a, it, so that's part of that, like comfort with admitting your personal faults. Faults aren't just like moments and times, but they can also be like shortcomings in aptitude or proclivities. So uh, as an example, um, hmm. I'm like a degenerate pioneer of town planning tasks. Mm -hmm. Is a very weird niche to fill. So, like, I really like to pave the ground uh, for things that involve like making things very routinized for everybody else. So, with the uh, um, utilization uh, KPI sort of uh, work that we're doing, I helped instigate that project and like made the case for it among a bunch of uh, engineers, data scientists, and uh, some of the suits. And now uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Neosha Benham and uh, Bhargavi, and I don't know her last name, actually. They are actually now running with the project and really leading it and owning it and making it amazing and actually happen. And with Access Isolation, I helped get that project started. But as I'm going off to parental leave, I'm going to be uh, handing that on to its next owner. And um, part of that has to do with my own level of like ability to maintain interest in something once I like. Once the path to success is very clear, I have a real hard time 
like sticking to that same thing because I'm really fascinated in like the discovery phase and going from an amorphous cloud of ideas to okay, here's what the plan actually is. And once we have that plan, I'm like, okay, this is boring to me now. <laughs> Which means I'm I understand totally- this, therefore it's right? boring. Yes. So like I cannot I am not a high performing team, like by any means. Like I can do nothing by myself. Um I, there has to be uh, people who are excellent at given a specific direction, make that goal happen. And like uh, some folks who are excellent at that are very hard at, oh, this is a big ambiguous problem. I don't know exactly what you mean. Right. So right. you need both different sets of skills uh, to come together to create a high performing org. Uh, but I'm able to just say, you know, what? like I'm crap on follow through. Sorry, I didn't get to this email. And <laughs> Like, you might think, oh, Netflix is high performing. If it's urgent, email someone else. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, <laughs> if it's urgent, I probably won't, you know, procrastinate and then forget about it. Um, but, like, you might think Netflix is high performing. Someone who does that sort of thing is going to get fired. And uh, at least in the last five years, almost, that hasn't been the case because I'm upfront about it, right? I set expectations correctly, uh, hmm. I own my mistakes. I find compensatory strategies or surround myself with people of complementary skills. And that's that sort of like meta awareness of self. I think that really leads to uh, success. I don't know how we get on this topic, but. <laughs> but it's wonderful. And it gets back to the metrics thing. Uh, you yeah. talked about how the metrics that you choose, your culture gets built around them. And if you measure individual performance, if it's all about me, I'm going to choose different actions than if it's about my team or if it's about the whole organization. So I have a question for you. Oh, goody. What do you mean measure individual performance? Uh, <laughs> <know>. <laughs> so Annual like- performance reviews, or sometimes it's more subtle. Sometimes it's just like the person everybody knows knows things. And the oh. person that you're not allowed to proceed if you don't have that person in the meeting so one of my favorite talks that I cannot find was from you that you gave at some like, <laughs> all local meetup thing where like the live stream of this local meetup was recorded. And you talked about the purple person. Do you remember this? talk? Oh, oh yeah. The purple person shows up in, um, in the camera to talk to. Oh, okay. Um, my, do you, so do you want to give a brief intro to people who may not have heard it before? Oh, okay. Purple developer. Yeah. Uh, purple developer is in charge of a system. And probably they understand it really well. So they probably wrote it because they have a really good mental model of how the system works. And then, uh, but, but then purple developer, maybe they're getting tired of it or we need too many changes. So here come blue and green. And they've been assigned to this project, probably part time. And they know kind of generally what it does, but not the underpinnings or how anything fits together. And they're trying to do stuff, but they don't have this mental model. And meanwhile, Purple is churning through tickets because his performance review or her, but usually his uh, performance review depends on how many tickets they close. Um, And Purple can change that system fast enough that blue and green will never get their heads around it, will never be able to form an accurate mental model because it's changing too fast. And Purple thinks blue and green are stupid. But that's when it gets back to your post (laughs) about... (laughs) <laughs> there is no sufficiently smart engineer. Yeah. Um, so before we get into the myth of the sufficiently smart engineer, so this purple person, when you think about like performance, uh, 
the ability to uh, observe performance. Like uh, one of the things that is a common question in the time of COVID is like, how are managers going to know about the performance of their engineers if they're all remote, which is like the most ludicrous question to me ever, right. because how did you ever try to really get a gauge on individual performance uh, before? And if it required like the subtle biased cues you get in person, I would really question your like uh, ability to do good performance appraisal. But I will say that like these um, sorts of uh, semi anti social or bad systems that uh, enable purple d people um, <laughs> and hold back the green and blue people uh, are really going to be exposed and uh, amplified when you are uh, remote. So like a, a, a truly high performing in, uh, in initial creator of a system uh, mm -hmm. would be leaning into how they socialize their plans, how they reduce their lottery factor, uh, how they can transition mental models from uh, their initial creation onto the next developer. And I Which believe incredibly hard. Oh, it, the most important task of uh, large scale s software engineering is the cohesiveness of the conceptual model among the participants in that uh, operate design and eventually inherit it. In the dialectic. So in the code and the minds of the people who work on it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I think that to me is the real measure of performance. So like, okay, if no one, if, the, if someone is not producing any output, sure. You can totally see that. I've seen that. If somebody is producing a bunch of like awful output, you can also notice that, but can you really get at the difference between somebody who's like, you know, really good and somebody who's really good plus 10%? No, I think that's well within the margin of error of observability in terms of external awareness of some individual engineers performance. Yeah. Your, your bias is way bigger than that 10%. Exactly. So if it's bigger than 10%, is it bigger than 50%? No, maybe not. And where exactly is the measure? I don't think anybody really knows. And it probably depends on how well the different people in the team work together, the level of feedback culture, how in touch the manager is, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of the day, I'm not a big believer in performance. I really think it should be more of a pass-fail thing for the current role than like a sliding scale. Or, or fit, not fit. Exactly. That's a that's an excellent point. Because um, there's so many people who maybe are really good at quantitative data interpretation and analysis and and just need to, the task defined well enough that they can stick with the quantitative and not have to figure out the narrative and they can go work for, uh, I don't know, stock traders. Exactly, exactly. Or, you know, it, I have been in roles in the past where I have really failed because it was an awful fit for me because it appealed... It, Though the requirement for those roles to be successful required skills that I do not have and do not care like to do. follow through. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. We are running up on time here. Uh -oh. um, is, is there anything else that you just really want to, to get into the heads of people who listen to Arrested DevOps? I would like to talk quite briefly, if we could, about that myth of the sufficiently smart engineer. Sweet. I love that post. It arose from a conversation, actually, a panel conversation that you and I had at Redeploy uh, two or three years ago, um, where uh, someone had asked, you know, if there was one thing that you could tell people, what would it be? And uh, this was uh, what I had said, and it was inspired by something you had said uh, earlier in the panel. Uh, so I should give you more credit about that. Uh, but this comes down to the fact that um, whenever something goes wrong, 
we tend to imagine a, ourselves or somebody else who is just a little bit smarter or had a higher predictive ability to foresee that that thing would go wrong and would have done whatever work would have been required to avoid that error. Uh, and it could be something as simple as like, you know, if Aaron makes the error, oh, well, I know Jessica never would have made that error. And so there's always this sort of like comparison either over time or cross individual where we can use um, this example that this person wouldn't have had that fault. The counterfactual. Exactly. The counterfactual. Of, and hold that there, it is physically possible that I could have done something differently. Yep. <laughs> yep. It, it, precisely. And that is just one of the most dehumanizing aspects of engineering culture and culture in general is we beat ourselves up about it. We beat each other up about it. We hold each other's this uh, variation free standard that is completely absurd. And not only do we do this culturally to each other, we then build systems that assume flawless behavior or behavior mm. without variation. Uh, and so we take this conceit, that we have and we bake it into our assumptions of how the world's going to work. And I think as a result, we end up under investing in operability. And that means like manual intervention uh, at the time while something's running. And instead we overinvest in like preventing errors. And so I think it, it is part of this more generalized thing of like, you know, and invest in recovery, not prevention. Right. Right. Because in the end, maybe you could have looked at that dashboard, but why would you? Right. And what, what we needed was not for you to look at every dashboard every minute. We needed somebody to say, hey, how about that dashboard today? <laughs> maybe just today. Maybe it matters. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that's what we do for each other. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much. Um, well, thank you so much. This has really been great. Uh, sorry if I rambled too much. But if anybody does want oh, to reach out to me to continue this rambling or uh, yell at me on Twitter or anything like that. I'm always interested in having conversations about this kind of topic. Um, Fabulous. What is your Twitter? It's my full name. So you'll probably want to look at the show notes to get that. <laughs> and, yeah, <I> <laughs> um, and, and you can look at the show notes at arresteddevops.com slash uh, systemic analysis. Hopefully that's not used because I just made it up. Um, systemic analysis and be glad I didn't try to make you type dialectic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank amazing. you so much. Um, okay. So I'm Jessica care at Jessitron on Twitter. This is arrested DevOps. And remember, there's always DevOps in the banana stand. <laughs>